Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. All right, a few places you're going to want to maybe be ready to turn in your Bible. If you have markers, go ahead and mark that. Will be 1 Thessalonians 4 and Revelation chapter 20. Those, are, those will be two of the main ones we kind of look at tonight. As has been the format for these discussions so far, what you are going to get tonight is a very broad, bird's eye view of a very complex topic. Uh, whole seminary courses for whole semesters are spent on eschatology, and so, and that's just the doctrine of the last times, eschatology. So, um, we're not going to be able to hit every single nook and cranny of all this, but what this is supposed to be is a time for you to maybe be exposed to different ways Christians have thought about the end times. Just let me ask you this, regardless of where you stand on the end times, where I'm not going to ask you that, I'm not asking you where you stand, Wherever you stand, how many of you have always believed that version and that's really all you ever heard or knew or read in terms of what you think about the last days? Let me ask it a different way. How many are familiar with maybe some of the multiple ways people do believe about the end times? Rapture, millennium. Okay, so maybe some of this will be uh, some some refreshers for you. I'm not going to answer all the questions. Uh, I don't know that at the end of the day I'm going to know where I stand on some of these things. So this is just a help for all of us to come together, uh, see what the big questions are, and answer the big questions with big answers. And then uh, hopefully that's a springboard for you to go and research and study for yourself. So let's begin, as we have, with, these pr- with the primary question at hand. What is the question we're asking tonight? So uh, over the next hour or so, this will be the question we're trying to answer. What is the timeline of events regarding the second coming of Christ, the rapture, and the millennium? And I'm, I'm going to suppose that most of you know the terms rapture and millennium. If you don't, I'm going to explain what they mean later. I think we all can understand what the second coming of Christ means. Uh, So that's the primary question, and this is where Christians disagree. This is one of those areas. Uh, Just like we talked about spiritual gifts back in May and the gift of tongues and prophecy and what we call the sign gifts, and then uh, predestination and free will back in June. These are areas where good, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching brothers and sisters in Christ have historically disagreed. I don't personally see any of these issues as issues that are worth dividing over, whether church and certainly not whether you're a Christian or not. But some people do feel very strongly about the spiritual gifts. Some people feel very strongly about predestination and free will. And some people feel very strongly about these particular views uh, of the end times. So let's just get jump right in and let's talk about those two primary things that we're going to address tonight. Here are the two main events in question. Number one is the rapture. It comes from uh, the Latin word rapio. The word rapture is not actually in the Bible, but that phrase to seize or to snatch in the Greek, First uh, Thessalonians 4.17, that word is harpazo or to catch away. So when Paul says in First Thessalonians verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. That Greek verb is harpazo, catch away. And when that was translated into the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible, the word was rapio. 
And of course, over time, you get the English word rapture, which just means to be caught up or snatched away. And it doesn't always refer to, you know, like the left behind rapture. Like when we sing uh, Blessed Assurance, visions of rapture now burst on my side. Fanny wasn't talking about Uh, the rapture she was talking about being caught up in emotion caught up in the moment Uh, and we talk about that too Uh, oh uh, who who is it that said that you know those old shows where somebody would say oh joy oh rapture Uh, on Wizard of Oz Wizard of Oz somebody says that I think it's the Tin Man or somebody he's not talking about the rapture okay (laughs) he's not channeling Jack Van Impey and talking about the rapture he's he's talking about joy and happiness being caught up in the moment of joy so it doesn't just mean that but that's the word we use to talk about this in Christian theology, referring to the end-time event when believers are caught up to meet the Lord. So Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is talking about the coming of the Lord. Seems that some people at the church at Thessalonica were teaching something strange that Christ had already come or that the resurrection had already happened. And Paul didn't want them to be ignorant or to be confused about it, so he wants to address them. He says, The trumpet of the Lord shall sound, the voice of the archangel will shout, then we who are alive and remain will be, uh, the dead will be raised, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet them in the air. So from here comes the Christian doctrine of the rapture, the catching away or the seizing of the church to be with Christ. The second main event we're going to discuss tonight and uh, over which there's disagreement is the subject of the millennium. Combination of two Latin words, mille meaning 1,000 and anus meaning years. So when we talk about the millennium, we're talking about 1,000 years. When we're approaching the year 2000, we're talking about the coming of another millennium, another 1,000 years. And so that's what we're referring to. Again, we use that word all the time, the millennium, this millennia, that millennium. But when we're talking about that in Christian theology, we're referring to the thousand-year reign of Christ that's referred to in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read these verses just to give us a little context. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him four thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority was given to judge Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So there's the millennium, okay? The Christian doctrine of the millennium. We all agree, we all agree, I think, hopefully, that Christ is returning to save his people and reign forever. So everyone believes in some version of the rapture. Christ is going to return. Believers will be caught up to meet him as he returns. All believers believe that Christ is coming to reign on the earth, whether that's going to be preceded by this 1,000-year reign called the millennium, or whether the millennium is figurative or symbolic. However we disagree on these things, we agree Christ is coming to save his people, and Christ is coming to reign forever. We disagree over the timing and the order of these main events. And we're going to break that, those, those two simple categories a millennium and the rapture we're going to break that down tonight but first we have to start with obviously I think the book of Revelation what do we do with it is what we read in Revelation past is it present is it future or is it a mixture of all the above and you'll notice as we discuss the disagreements later 
all the disagreements, whether it's about the timing of the rapture or the timing of the millennium, all of the disagreements stem from how you read Revelation. Are we reading something that's describing current events in John's day, and that's it? Are we reading something that John is seeing that has already happened, that he's just recounting in a different way? Or are these things that are all yet to come in the future, or is it some mixture of all of them? I would just venture to say the most common interpretation for most evangelicals, that is conservative, Bible-believing Christians, I would venture to say this is the majority view, a futurist view. Most or all of the events in Revelation are yet to come. Most or all of the events in Revelation, for instance, when we read about the, the seven bowls of God's wrath and the seven trumpets and the Antichrist and uh, the, the last day's judgment and all, all that stuff is purely futuristic. It is in the future somewhere in what we call the last days. Okay? This requires a more literal reading of Revelation that primarily points us to future events. And when I say literal, it's kind of hard when you're talking about apocalyptic literature like Revelation to talk about what's literal and what's not. Uh, but in terms of what we read and what we see, John sees, um, I think most would agree that the beasts and the different visions are sort of symbolic. But, but a futuristic reading sees them as, as very literal fulfillments. In other words, when they see the beast coming out of the sea, they say, okay, this means there will be a beast, a kingdom, coming out of the Mediterranean Sea. When they see that John uses the word Babylon over and over again to refer to the, the, the wicked kingdom in Revelation, they say, oh, this is Rome. And so... Uh, there will be a revived Roman Empire in the last days. Something will happen in Europe, and the Antichrist will come from Europe. So the futuristic view requires a very literalistic view that these things are pinpointing exact future events and timelines. Okay? Make sense to everybody? That's the futuristic view. Another view, maybe not as popular, uh, but it exists, is the historicist or the historical view this view says that Revelation symbolically portrays history, namely from the apostolic age to the end times. So when you read Revelation according to the historicist view, you're reading kind of a veiled, symbolic shadow that's telling the history really of the church from the death of the apostles till the time that Jesus returns. So you can see how there's a little mixture there. There's some things that are past, some, thing that, some things that John sees and writes that are already happening in his time, and there are things that are yet to come. This is not a literal reading. It's a symbolic reading. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a hint about one of those symbols in a minute. Uh, this view tended to be centered around Western Europe, specifically at the time of the Reformation, and dealt with the Pope. If you go back and read any of the uh, Reformation-era confessions, so like the, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and we talked about this a little in our study of the Baptist faith and message and where our creed came from. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, under the article of the church, specifically says that Jesus is the head of his church, and that the Antichrist is actually the Pope because they viewed the Pope as usurping the authority and the role of Christ. In other words, how dare he call himself the head of the church? He must be the Antichrist that the Bible talks about. And the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is still used by Presbyterians to this day, Reformation-era creed, confession, it said almost the exact same thing that the Pope was the beast. The Roman Catholic Church is the Antichrist, and they set themselves up in the place of God, and they're persecuting the people of God in that time, the Protestants, uh, through their martyrdom. Okay, so you can see how their, their view at that time was, this is the last days, 
right? If you're at the time of the Reformation and your villages and your people and your churches are being attacked and imprisoned and tortured and burned by this guy, the Pope, and you believe you're the true people of God, you can see how you're going to read Revelation this way, don't you? That must be the Antichrist. We must be the last time saints, and this must be God's last work on the earth before he returns. So this is a historicist view. And it's not limited to that time. People still believe this to this day. Uh, it's kind of your, your hardcore uh, reformed churches, maybe in Scotland and Ireland. Still, the, the Pope is the singular Antichrist. He is the beast. It's interesting, though, when you think about this view, because when you look at um, the pictures you see in Revelation, what do you see? You see the harlot, the whore of Babylon. Remember, she's riding on the, the dragon, and she has a cup in her hand. She's wearing a scarlet robe. And if you're in this mindset, you say, oh, that sounds like the mass. That sounds like the priest, you know, the woman carrying the cup, and here's the, the adulterous church, the church of Rome. So you can see where they're coming from. Not a very common view, but that view is out there. Another reading of Revelation is what we call the preterist view. Most, according to this, most or all of the events in Revelation have already occurred in the past. Hence that Latin word, praetor, preterist, it's already happened. Now there are two main views under this view, and you're going to see this a lot with... (laughs) With, with the end time stuff. There's one main view and several sub-views. And this main view and several sub that's what makes this so complicated. So we're kind of doing the generic uh, broad view here. One version of preterism is called partial preterism. Now, if you can put the two and two together, if, if preterism is that everything in Revelation's already happened, partial preterism is that some or many of the events in Revelation have already occurred, but some are still future. And this will all click at the end when we talk about the, the rapture, the millennium, and, and then the, the things that make me think, as I put it. There's another version of preterism that's a little problematic, and I think you'll see why. Uh, it's full preterism. All the events in Revelation and when we say all, they mean all. You mean even the second coming? Yes. Even the judgment? Yes. Even the resurrection? Yes. It's all already happened in one way or another, and it ended in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. A.D. 70, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire. So preterism, that's probably the most complicated one because you got the partial version that's some things have happened, some things are still to come. And then you have the full version that just says the whole thing's already happened. It's, you know, we can read it, we can study it, but there's nothing yet coming for us to understand. The last view uh, is what we call the idealist view. Uh, not that it's a, po- a necessarily positive, not like idealism, um, but it, just look at it this way. It's a combination of all the ideas. (laughs) Idealist view. Revelation is allegorical. Everybody familiar with the term allegory? Uh, Lord of the Rings is allegorical. It's a a story about hobbits and elves and wizards and stuff, but it tells the story of the gospel. tells the story of Jesus and his suffering for us and bearing the burden of sin for us. Chronicles of Narnia, kind of like an allegory. You know, you can see uh, C.S. Lewis working the gospel in there. Revelation is an allegory. It portrays the constant struggle between good and evil. In a very overarching way, Revelation is not to be read as a series of events, whether past, present, or future, historical, or whatever. It's to be read symbolically as a picture of the constant ongoing battle between good and evil, God and Satan. So this is a spiritual view. It sees perpetual ongoing patterns, and here's an important word, types. Types in the history of redemption. Types, um, sort of like foreshadowing. 
So when we say uh, Adam is a type of Christ, Adam was made, uh, he's a man, he's tested, he's tempted, he fails. He's a type of Christ. Well, Christ comes as a man, he's tempted, but he's victorious. Okay? Moses is a type of Christ. Moses is called by God to deliver his people from slavery, takes them to the promised land. Jesus fulfills that type. He comes as the deliverer of God's people, leading us not away from physical slavery, but slavery to sin and unrighteousness, and delivering us to heaven. David is a type of Christ, the great king, the giant slayer. Okay? He fails in many ways. Jesus fulfills that type because he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he's victorious over all things. And so you see, that, that's what a type means. It points us to something else. This version of reading Revelation says that what we see are not descriptions of events, but they're types of things that will keep on happening. There will always be a conflict between the forces of good and evil. There will always be beasts or antichrists that are rising up against Christ. There will always be these seasons of tribulation and judgment for the people of God. They might come to an end one day with one big tribulation or one big antichrist. Nevertheless, what we read in Revelation are these ongoing pictures. In the end, according to this view, God is victorious, Satan is defeated, Christ reigns forever, and there is the big picture of the book of Revelation that the idealists say is the point. Not the charts and the numerology and the, and the different symbols and all this and trying to figure out what it all means, but just the general picture, good triumphs over evil, God will judge the world in righteousness, and he will reign over it all. So I think you can see that how one interprets Revelation determines how you view these two big events, the rapture and the millennium. And we're going to break those down next. Before I continue, does anyone have any questions? And we've got a lot of stuff in the few minutes we've spent. Any questions right now? Okay. So when we're done, and I pray tonight, y'all do not have the right to, to go, Shoo. That's a lot of stuff. Because here's the question time. Questions, comments, concerns. All right, let's move on. The millennium. Jesus will return to reign over all things. But is this a literal 1,000-year reign after his return? Or is this just symbolic of a greater reality? Same question with the rapture. Jesus will return for his people. But will this be a separate event from the actual second coming? Or is this event part of the second coming? Okay, so let's start with the millennium. I started with the rapture first, and then I went back and said, no, we've got to get the millennium first because the views of the rapture fit in with one's view of the millennium. There are three main views that have been held by Christians regarding the events that we read about in Revelation 20. So Revelation 20 Satan is bound for a thousand years. Uh, there's a resurrection of the righteous, and they reign with Christ for a thousand years on the earth, what we call the millennial kingdom, the millennium. So it is in response to whatever that 1,000 years is that we have the disagreements. The first one, and I think the most common among evangelicals today, is pre-millennialism. Now, those are big words, but you can just put it together. The millennium is coming, the thousand-year reign of Christ. So his return, in this view, is pre-that. Things will get worse before Christ's return. Sin will get worse. Things will get worse. Christ will return. And then there will be a literal thousand-year reign on the earth. Okay, make sense? That's, that's premillennialism. The thousand-year thing we read in Revelation is literal. Christ will return, and then that will happen. And his return will be before it happens, pre-millennium. Okay? Under this view, you guessed it, there are two main views. <laughs> Under premillennialism, there are two main views. One is what we call dispensational. 
You could say that three times fast. Dispensational premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism. We will talk about this in detail in August. August 3rd, I think, is our last summer study. We're going to talk about this issue, um, Israel and the church, the, the different views on that, because there are a lot of different views. Dispensationalism teaches that God has two distinct, distinct being the key word, distinct peoples, namely Israel and the church. So for dispensational premillennialists, in the time of the millennium, national Israel, like the nation of Israel in the Middle East, okay, literal Israel, nation, race, okay, will be given prominence among the nations. Uh, and that is, that is the reason for the millennium, according to dispensational premillennialists, that God will, at this time, return to his work with Israel. At this time, the temple will be rebuilt, or it will have already been rebuilt, and memorial sacrifices will be reinstituted. Everybody got that part? Got the blanks? This view became popular, rose to prominence, really, um, in the late 1800s by, by two primary guys, but there's a lot after them. Uh, the first one was John Nelson Darby. Anybody heard his name before? John Nelson Darby? I mean, he, he would be the, the father of uh, modern dispensationalism in the 1830s, 1840s. Uh, Irish, I think, by birth, but ministered in England and, uh, and really brought this to popularity. And, and what I mean by brought this to popularity is that he, he really began, you know, if you've ever seen a chart of the end times and you see, you know, like the, the church age and then the rapture and then this and then the chart, the breakdown, that was Darby's influence on, on Christianity. He was big on the charts and the, the numbers, the numerology, and uh, p- putting the pieces together like that. Another one you probably know is C.I. Schofield. Heard that name before? The Schofield Reference Bible. Does he might have a Schofield Reference Bible? Yep. And, and, and that was the first sort of study Bible that featured notes and extra helps that really taught a dispensational viewpoint. So that was the first time, first time many Christians, uh, evangelical Christians, Protestants, would have had a Bible that, that really right there in your face, here's notes on what the rapture is, here's notes on this, here's notes on that, and so on. It was a Schofield reference Bible. But since then, I would say that this view, dispensational premillennialism, and I, I could ask you to raise your hand if this is what you grew up hearing and believing. I would raise my hand. It's what I grew up hearing and believing. And I, I didn't know there were other options. I didn't know there were other views on this. And f- frankly, when I got to Bible college and learned there were other views and people actually believed them, it, uh, it scandalized me a little bit, and maybe, maybe it'll scandalize you tonight to know that there are other views. But one of the, the ways this became popular, here's, here's Darby. Uh, this was uh, C.I. Schofield. In the 70s, I think, 1970-something, Hal Lindsey published or wrote and published The Late Great Planet Earth. Anybody ever have this book? And, and this was one of the first times that it was kind of popularized in Christian bookstores and it's it's really after he writes that book that you begin to have all the really scary 80s movies that they showed you in children's church about the end times anybody ever see that like the mark the beast and all these these videos about the rapture and things but I know that you're going to know the next one does anybody know the next thing I'm going to show you that really just influenced and capitalized on this view for Christian's in America. Left behind, absolutely. Man, I had the audio drama versions of the books, and I was the dorky kid. Of course, I was the, the dorky kid all along, but I stayed up late to watch, you know, Jack and Rexella Van Impe, and every time there was a new Antichrist, I was like, oh, this is the one. And, <laughs> and the left behind audio books, I just ate them up, and they were good, well-produced, uh, but this really, I mean, you could walk into Lifeway, and there it was, as if to say, this is the 
Southern Baptist evangelical view on the end times. They didn't intend that to be the case, but that's what was being conveyed. And um, a lot of people developed their eschatology. I'm not mocking it by any means, but a lot of people developed their eschatology from those books. In other words, they, they read the books. They said, oh, this, this matches up with what I see in Scripture. That must be the way it is. There's another version of premillennialism that you might not have heard of. It's called historical premillennialism that says there is no hard, hard is a key word, distinction between Israel and the church. No hard distinction. Now we can get, we'll get into this in August again, Israel and the church. It's called historical because um, you can look at many ancient church, I mean from the first century, and you can see that some were premillennialist in their views of the second coming. Some were, the other views we're going to talk about later. So they just say, we're the historical premillennialists, we're not the dispensational types. So we don't see that hard line between Israel and the church, rapture, all that stuff. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, they say, this is not about national Israel, but the millennium is simply about the universal reign of Christ. So the millennium is not God's return to do this thing for Israel that he's put off for the age of the Gentiles. This is about wrapping it all up in this grand kingdom of Christ on the earth for a thousand years. Historical premillennialists say God's promises to Israel are fulfilled in the church and her reign with Jesus. And again, we'll talk about the Israel church thing in August, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that right now. Silly me, when I was thinking about planning this out, I thought I could do end times and church in Israel in the same lesson, and that would have been a nightmare for you and me. <laughs> God's promises to Israel are fulfilled in the church and her reign with Jesus. So there's nothing really for God to have to go back and do according to the historical version. In the dispensational version, the church is raptured out, God finishes his work with Israel and, and fulfills the promises about the land and the temple and all that stuff. Uh, for historical premillennialism, no, it's all fulfilled in Christ, it's all fulfilled in the church, and this thousand-year reign is just kind of the exclamation point on earth's history. Another view is uh, post-millennialism, okay? So that was pre-millennialism, and there was the two main views under that. There is post-millennialism, and as you can tell, it sees a progressive victory of Christ over the course of the centuries and the years, after which, post-millennium, post Christ will return. So according to post-millennialism, this is not a thousand-year literal reign of Christ on the earth, it is symbolic, and it's a symbolic age of peace and justice on the earth before Christ returns. Okay? To put it crassly, I don't know that many post-millennialists would like me to say it this way. To put it crassly, things will get better and better and better as the gospel is preached and as Jesus is spread throughout the world to the point where the church and the glory of God, uh, in my next reference, Habakkuk 2.14, uh, the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. And when we get to that point, and only at that point, Christ will return and usher in his eternal kingdom. So um, this is ushered in as the gospel is preached. As the knowledge of God and Christ goes around the world, that is the kingdom of God growing and so we're not looking for a literal thousand years. The thousand years is symbolic and it's happening right now as Christ is spread and the gospel progressively is victorious in the earth. And after this wonderful age of the gospel being preached to all nations, Jesus returns after this millennial symbolic reign through the church. Things are getting better, Things are getting better Brent. Yes, they are. Just keep your head up. I'm not supposed to show which one I think is right and wrong, but be that as it may. The next one is amillennialism. Uh, you throw ah in front of anything, it just means not. So <laughs> there is no 
there is no ah, there's no real literal millennium. Rather, we are currently living under the reign of Christ. Now, you say that sounds an awful lot like the post-millennialism. Well, it's different in that post-millennialism tends to be optimistic. Things are going to get better and better and better as the gospel is progressively preached to the world. People are saved. The church grows. Jesus returns. Amillennialism tends to be, there are different pockets, but it tends to be more pessimistic like premillennialism. No, things are going to get worse. Sin is going to increase. Apostasy is going to increase. The judgment of God is going to increase. And it will be then that Christ returns. But where they share with postmillennialism is that there is no thousand-year future reign of Christ on the earth. That is happening right now through the church. And I'll, I'll show you what, how they believe this. Satan, according to amillennialists, is already bound by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So how did that passage in Revelation 20 start? Satan will be bound thrown into the bottomless pit, right? And then Christ will reign for a thousand years. And the futurist says that is yet to come. And the amillennialist, tongue-tied, it says, no, it's already happened. Now, just a few scripture references, they're there for you, but underline them and, and look them up later, I think are interesting. John 12, 31, um, just before Jesus goes to the cross, and it's the final hours and the week of Jesus. And in John 12, 31, referring to his coming death and resurrection, he says, now is the ruler of this world cast out. Now is the judgment. That's interesting language for Jesus to choose to talk about his cross and resurrection. That the ruler of this world, Satan, by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, he says, is the casting out and the judgment of Satan. Same thing happens in Matthew chapter 12. You can look that up later. Jesus talks about the strong man. You know this part? The strong man will be bound. Referring to Satan, the strong man will be bound and thrown into the judgment. But Jesus is talking about his coming death and resurrection. So amillennialists say this is no future thing that has yet to happen. Through his cross and his victory over death, hell, and the grave, Jesus has bound Satan, not destroyed him or destroyed all demons. There's still that activity and evil in the world, but they are bound symbolically by the power of Jesus. Um, the church age, according to amillennialism, the church age then is the inbreaking of that kingdom by the preaching of the gospel. So amillennialists really have this uh, super realized view of the kingdom. It's already there. Jesus is already exalted. He's already on his throne, reigning over all things. His enemies are currently being made his footstool. We are in that millennial reign where Satan is bound. The forces of evil have been defeated. They're just awaiting their final judgment. And so they, they really play up the fact this is already our reality. And it's being realized as the gospel is preached and the kingdom of God advances. Okay, so on the millennium, any questions? <laughs> any questions, concerns? Not concerns. Let's not do that yet. Let's have questions. Brent's concerned about things getting better. I don't think they are. I don't think they will be. But uh, that's, a, that's a dominant view of the Puritans. And it's still a dominant view amongst uh, many Presbyterians. I, I quote R.C. Sproul a lot. He's a post-millennialist. Um, a lot of folks in that camp are. Uh, next, let's go to the rapture. The rapture. Oh, let's, let's talk first about some of these things. So, yeah, in, according to amillennialism um, and post-millennialism, Jesus has already won his victory over darkness through the cross and his resurrection. According to 
different versions of post and amillennialist then, as you read Revelation and you come across things like the mark of the beast and the beast and the antichrist, you might not necessarily be looking at a literal, physical, futuristic person or thing or stamp, you know, mark of the beast. You're looking at types and symbols of things that may have already happened in part, but are currently happening. So, you know, with a futuristic reading, the Antichrist is still to come, right? And, and he will set up this Roman Empire, revived Roman Empire, and there'll be this literal mark or something of some kind, uh, 666, without which you're unable to sell or buy and do stuff like that. Um, according to amillennialism and post-millennialism, you have always had these types. There have always been antichrists. There's always been marks of the beast that set you apart as the world or the kingdom of God. And so, you know, symbolic kind of type versions of what you're reading. And the tribulation, likewise, with the futuristic reading, there is a literal future, terrible seven-year coming tribulation. We'll talk about that in a minute. With Amil and Postmill, Postmill see th- sees things maybe getting worse before they start getting better. Amil still says, no, we're in that tribulation right now. It's ongoing. The judgment of God is being poured out. The saints are being persecuted before Christ returns. So again, when they read about the bowls and the trumpets and the different judgments, those two last views aren't seeing something that's yet to happen in the future. They're seeing current patterns and ongoing pictures of judgment and tribulation right now before Jesus returns. Okay, uh, Futuristic reading. All of that is yet to come in the future. And that would be premillennialism of, of any kind. All right, now the rapture. There are three main views on the rapture, the catching away of believers to be with Christ. There is what's called pre-tribulational, the pre-tribulational view. And as you can tell, they teach that believers will be caught away, raptured, before, pre, a literal time of judgment called the tribulation. So the rapture will occur before this period called the tribulation, this last day's judgment of God on the earth. This entails, I mean just by the the reading of it, this entails a literal seven-year tribulation. So as they read, uh, for instance, Daniel 9, uh, Matthew 24, that refers a lot to Daniel, and as they look in Revelation chapter 6 through 8 with the bowls and the trumpets and the judgment of God, they're seeing a, a literal future seven-year time. Daniel talks about a time, a time, and half a time, and then another time, time, and half a time. Three and a half years, three and a half years, seven year, seven-year tribulation, or Daniel 70 weeks uh, symbolized as seven years. And so they say this is a futuristic time that's yet to come. It's literal. There will be a rapture of the church, and then there will be seven years, literally, of this outpouring of, ju- of God's judgment on the earth. Pre-trib Christians, pre-trib rapture Christians, uh, say that Christians will escape this time of judgment. Based on uh, two main verses, Revelation 3.10 Revelation 3.10 is in the midst of John's letters to the seven churches, yeah, uh, the seven churches in Asia. Remember, that's how Revelation starts. One of the churches he writes to is the church at Sardis. Remember that? And one of the things he says about the church at Sardis is because of their faithfulness, he says, God is going to preserve you from the coming time of judgment, the tribulation. And the futuristic reading of that says, yeah, he was writing to a real church, but that real church is symbolic of the last day's church. And so just as he promises that that church at Sardis would be spared the wrath of God that's coming in the tribulation, the last day's church that is here when Jesus returns in the rapture will be spared the coming wrath of God in the tribulation. Now, if you couple that with 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and you see in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, what did it say? The trumpet will sound, archangel cries, the dead in Christ will be raised, and then, what? We who are alive and remain will be 
caught up to do what? To meet them, to meet the Lord in the air. And they say, okay, see there? It's not the second coming because that would be Christ's return to earth. Rather, this must be something different in that we're caught up to meet him in the air. And then if you kind of couple that with this idea that the last day's church will be spared the wrath of God, and then one of the big go-tos is that after Revelation 3, you don't read about the church anymore in Revelation, according to that view. They say the church isn't here during the tribulation. Where'd they go? They've been raptured. They've been caught away before that time of judgment on the earth. God will return then, according to this view, to his work with Israel. He'll restore the nation of Israel. He'll restore the temple. He'll restore that prominence of Israel. Nationally, politically, racial Israel now. Not, not symbolic, but Israel. Like on the map, you can go see it. That's it. So there'll be a heavy emphasis for this view on 1948 and the refounding of the nation of Israel. I mean, that's a big, a big deal for this view. And it's... it's convincing that all this time there's been no nation and now suddenly in what you might see as the last days 1948 oh suddenly here's the nation of Israel again redrawn on the map with borders and people go live there the Jews and they're still going there to this day so they say see there there's that end times promise God is restoring the nation political racial Israel this of course falls uh, uh, <laughs> let's say it all together now a pre-tribulational, dispensational, pre-millennial view, <laughs> it, it all falls within this futuristic, dispensational, pre-millennial reading of Revelation. Most of what we read is yet to come. Christ will come back before a literal millennium, and the rapture will happen before the tribulation of the last days. Another view that's pretty similar in a lot of ways to that one is the mid-tribulational view. It, so uh, in all the stuff about dispensationalism, Israel and the church, the Antichrist, the tribulation, all that stuff is really the same for this view. They just happen to think that the rapture will not happen before the seven-year tribulation, but will happen in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. You say, well, where, where in the world did they get that? Daniel 7.25 when Daniel's talking about the time, time, and half a time, 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 and half a time, he says that the saints will be given over to be persecuted by the beast, the Antichrist. They will be given over to this godless kingdom for a time, a time, and half a time. That's a time and a half. Time, 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 and a half. So that's three and a half years. So they say, see, right there it is. The church will be here for part of the tribulation. They will bear part of that judgment, not on them, but because they're here in the world, for three and a half years, and then the rapture will happen, and they'll be caught away. And again, even within this view, there's, there's, there's uh, 15 different bullet points we could go down about this view. Uh, so this is a very broad view of, of mid-tribulational rapture. So believers are, in, are here for three and a half years of the judgment, but this still falls within a futurist, dispensational, premillennial view, though it is not as common as those with similar views. Lastly is the post-tribulational view of the rapture. And as you can tell, there will be a rapture, but it will be after whatever the tribulation is. Some will say there is a literal seven-year tribulation that will start up at some point. Some will say this is a symbolic number for God's judgment over the course of the church age that will get worse, or in the post-millennial sense will get better. Uh, however you view that, they do not view the rapture as occurring before this final outpouring of God's judgment on the world. Believers will be caught up to meet the Lord but it will be as he returns in the second coming. So they say there's, there, there's no biblical evidence to suggest that there's some secret return of Christ and then some other public return of Christ, okay? Uh, there's, there's only one return 
Believers are caught up, and Jesus returns. Uh, the tribulation judgments are ongoing, according to this view, and they will either culminate, according to um, historic pre-mill, it will get worse and worse and worse, or some ah-mill views, it will get worse and worse and worse, or they will come and fade away, as in the post-mill view. So you can see that both optimistic and pessimistic views can hold to this. The optimistic view of the post-millennial return of Christ, yes, there will be an outpouring of God's judgment, but then, by the preaching of the gospel, things will get better and better and better. Christ returns. Or amillennial or historic pre-mill, no, things will get worse, sin will get worse, apostasy will get worse, God will pour out his judgment on the earth, he will return in the clouds, and as he returns, we are caught up to meet him in the sky as he comes to deliver his judgment to the earth. After a symbolic thousand-year reign of the church age, according to amillennialism. So what I want to do now, as I have done, is uh, things that make me think. I was told by someone that will not go named that in the last time I pretty much told you what I think, but I hope, <laughs> I hope I'll, I'll, I'll fairly tell you this time uh, things that make me think about this. Tim told me he was going to leave at 6.50. I said, okay, you, I'm just gonna, you're not going to be mad at the, the post-trib thing, right? And he said no, so he, that's why Tim is gone. Here are things that make me think. Uh, I have some pretty settled views on what we talked about last time, predestination and free will. I'm not so settled on the spiritual gifts thing, so that was really things that made me think. And I'm honestly not quite settled on some of this stuff either. So uh, these are really things that make me think. Um, the futuristic aspect of everything uh, should make us all think. Here's why full preterism, remember that? We remember that still. That's everything in Revelation has already happened. It's technically heretical because they claim that in some way Christ has already returned and the judgment has already happened. Typically they tie this up between the years 63 AD and 70 AD. And if you're familiar with your church history, you'll know that's when the persecution began under Nero in 63 with the burning of Rome, and Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. So full preterists say that was it. That was everything. Whatever the judgment is, whatever the tribulation is, whatever the return of Christ is, whatever the resurrection is, it's already happened and it's done. And this would be technically heresy because as Christians we must confess that Jesus is coming again in the clouds, every eye will see him, and he's coming back literally to reign on the earth. Okay, amen? That's the, the view we hold and Christians have always held. So full preterism is technically outside of Christianity. It would be considered a false teaching. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, when Jesus appears to John, he says, I'm going to show you things that are, and I'm going to show you things that are yet to come. And so that has to make us think for a minute that these are things that have happened, they are happening, and maybe some things that are yet to happen. So I think if you're going to look at Revelation, at least there's a partial preterist view. We're reading about things that have happened, but there are still yet things that are yet to happen. So that idealist view that's kind of a hodgepodge of all the views kind of puts that together, at least in my mind. I mean, and historicism, the thing about Rome and the Catholic Church and the Pope, that, I mean, that's all in there too, I think. So that, that, I like that idealistic view that's kind of a combination of all. We're, we're reading things in Revelation that have happened, things that are happening, and things that are yet to happen. Two big words for you to remember tonight, patterns and types. Patterns and types. Anytime you read apocalyptic literature in the Bible, whether it's Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Revelation, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 21 through 24. When you read that, you're reading a lot of symbols and you're reading a lot of pictures and a lot of weird visions and things that mean something else beyond themselves, right? 
pictures, types, dreams, visions, two big words, patterns, and types. So yes, in AD 63, Rome burns, Nero blames the Christians, and he begins one of the most vicious, violent persecutions on Christians to this day culminating really in A.D. 70 with the literal destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, we can't oversell that enough, right? The temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is gone in A.D. 70 as Gentile pagans literally come into the temple, set up their false idols. Sounds like the abomination of desolation, doesn't it? The, the, The idol set up in the temple. We can't deny that those things happened, And we can't deny that that sounds an awful lot like what we read in Revelation. Get this even further. Emperor worship in the Roman Empire that started back with Caesar Augustus that said the emperor is a god, right? And you're supposed to worship him as one of the gods came to its height with Nero. And there were practices where literal images of Nero would have been set up before the people that they were supposed to come make an offering to and say, Caesar is Lord. And if they did that and they made the right sacrifice to Nero, the Roman emperor, they would receive, guess what? A mark on their hand or their head that said they have paid their tribute to Caesar, they're good citizens, therefore they are able to sell and buy. So we cannot deny historically that these things happened. But I also don't think that's it. Okay, full preterism says that was it. He was the Antichrist, that was the thing, that was the mark. Rather, I think we should look at that and see ongoing patterns. Doesn't John say in 1 John 2, 18 and 19, that many Antichrists have gone out into the world? And how does he say we know who the Antichrists are? Well, they deny that Jesus came in the flesh and they abandon the church. So the spirit of Antichrist is more, I'm not saying it's less than, but it's more than just one guy setting up some kingdom. It is the spirit of apostasy. It's the spirit of disobedience and sin and wickedness. I'd say the same thing about the mark of the beast. I'm not saying there isn't necessarily some futuristic version that is the thing But all along the way, even with Nero, we have seen that in order to make it in the world, you have to capitulate to the world. One of the ways we see it in our day and time is like with cancel culture, okay? You say the wrong thing the wrong way about whatever, and you're done. Your business ruined, your career ruined. People run out of their their lives, right? That sounds like the mark of the beast to me, at least a version that unless you do what the world says and believe what the world thinks and say what the world wants you to say, you're going to be without a job and you're going to be ran out of your career and out of your home. So there's at least a type of the mark of the beast. So all that just to say, when you, when you see these things, um, there might be some futuristic version that is the thing, the antichrist, the mark of the beast. That's fine. If it happens that way, I'll be like, okay, that's the one. But all along the way, we've seen types and patterns of the same thing, Satan versus God. Um, Let me just move on to the millennium and the rapture, and I'll, I'll wrap it up here. One of the things that challenges me, though, on the other side with the millennium is Revelation 20, verse 5. If you're going to adopt a mill or post-mill view, I don't know what the first resurrection means, okay? I'm sympathetic to the mill view, I'll just tell you that, but that thing in Revelation 20 verse 5 about the first resurrection bothers me, because if you're going to buy all into amillennialism, you have to make that first resurrection mean something else than people literally rising from the dead, it's got to mean like salvation or the, the age of the church as people are brought from spiritual death to life. It's got to mean something else. So that troubles me. If you're going to buy all into Amil or post-mill or whatever else besides pre-mill, I don't know what to do with that first resurrection um, if there's no literal millennium. 
Just write these verses down. You can take them home. We got to go. John 12, 31. I talked about that one already. When Jesus is about to go to the cross, now is the judgment of this world. Now is Satan thrown down. Write down 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. I preached on that a few months ago in 1 Peter. Talks about Jesus preaching to the spirits that are in prison. And I preach that, that my view on that is that was Jesus' declaration of victory over the forces of sin and darkness, that through his cross and resurrection he has defeated them. Second Peter chapter two, verse four identifies those spirits as fallen angels. And it goes further to say that they're in gloomy chains. That's interesting, isn't it? If Satan's going to be bound, Jesus, through his cross and resurrection, confines these demonic spirits to gloomy chains until the day of judgment. The same thing shows up in Jude 1.6. Jude 1.6, he talks about these gloomy chains. that The, the enemies of darkness, uh, the, the forces of darkness are bound in chains awaiting the day of judgment. How about the rapture? First um, Thessalonians 4.17 does raise questions for me because I, I, w- I would wonder why meet the Lord in the air as opposed to him coming on down. I don't personally see that as a, as a, a proof that this is some separate thing from the second coming. And I'll tell you why. Two more scriptures to write down and we'll be done. Colossians 3 verse 4. You know this part. Keep your mind uh, on things above, not on things below. And then Paul says this thing that, that keep your mind where, where Christ is in the heavenly things, right? And when Christ who is your life returns, Colossians 3 4, you will return with him. It seems Paul is talking about the second coming, and he says you will return with him. Now, someone who believes in a pre-trib rapture would say, well, of course, it's because the rapture's already happened seven years before Jesus came, and that's fine. But it seems as if Paul is talking about one event. The next one is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. I'm just gonna have to leave it there for tonight. That is the chapter on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. That's where Paul says, we shall not all sleep. We shall be changed in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye. When the last trumpet sounds, the last trumpet, sounds to me like when I'm reading that, the second coming, the resurrection of the dead, are the very last things that happen. And they're one big event. Now, how the timing of all that works with being caught up as he comes down and the trumpets and the angels, I don't know. And I'm okay not knowing. But that's just where my kind of, uh, my kind of thinking goes. In August, uh, we'll talk about those distinctions and the views between the church and Israel. So I invite you to come back on August 3rd as we talk about that. Let me just remind you of the things that we do agree on and that we must agree on as Christians. Number one, we believe and agree that Jesus is coming. Amen? Jesus is coming. That brings us the need to evangelize, the, people, the need to tell people about Jesus, the need to warn people about the coming judgment. No matter where you are in this fog of views, we agree on those things. Uh, every eye will see him at some point <laughs> when he returns. Maybe not in the rapture thing, but in the second coming, every eye will see him. We will be like him. There will be a resurrection of the righteous to heaven, and there will be a resurrection of the unrighteous to eternal hell. And I think we can all agree with the verse, Revelation 22, verse 20, even so, come Lord Jesus. And that's kind of where I've decided I'm just going to place my flag in this whole thing. We can talk about the views all day long. We can have fun debating and arguing and looking at the various points. But at the end of the day, however and whenever he comes i'll be happy about it (laughs) and i think you will be too so let's just say with the scripture even so however it is come lord jesus and we'll be thrilled when it happens let's pray thank you jesus for the promise that you are returning thank you for the promise that you are coming back for your people 
And uh, however that plays out and whatever it looks like, we will be thrilled when we at last see your face and you come to save your people from this world of darkness and sin and despair. Thank you for the promise of the resurrection. Thank you for the promise of the eternal reign uh, of your sovereign rule and kingdom on the earth. We thank you that you've made us part of that through your cross, through your resurrection, by giving us your Holy Spirit, a foretaste of the things that are to come. And uh, we say with all the saints and all the church, even so, come Lord Jesus. The Spirit and the bride say, come. We ask all these things and praise you in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.